Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Um, I've been making the joke throughout the week that Blake accelerated our sermon series by at least a solid month um, as he walked us through excellently, I would add, verses 8 through 12. And this morning, it's my desire to pick up with verse 13 and make our way really through verse 15. And as we do this, uh, it is important to remember where we are in this narrative, because really Paul has invited us not only as we've looked at Paul, looked at Paul ex, uh, exposit Romans one verses Romans chapter one verses one through seven. We see in verse eight that he really begins to tip his hand to us so that we can see his desires. What is the motivation of Paul's heart as he has meditated on the beauties of the gospel? As he has seen the gospel of God, and even in verse nine we see him go on to say that he serves with his. Spirit in the gospel of his son, speaking of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what is it that has motivated Paul to pray this? What is it that's motivated Paul? What is it that gives him this deep longing to go to Rome? And Blake did an excellent job of walking us through the, the familial relationship that Paul had with the church at Rome, although he had never been to Rome. He had never seen the people of Rome. He had not made his way to the church that was established there by God's grace. The church of Rome was established by another brother who came in and preached the gospel. Souls were saved and the church was established. But Paul longed to be there. And this prayer that we look at this morning is really picking up where Blake left off. We examined the, the idea that he longed to see them, that there was this familial bond. But I wanna bring about three other things that motivated Paul in this prayer. The first is, that he desired to have a harvest, that he desired to have a harvest among those who were at Rome. And he really desired that harvest in two ways. He desired that harvest through the evangelism of gospel proclamation. And he desired that harvest through the discipleship through the gospel. Not only did he have a desire to see a harvest, we also see later on in verse 14 that he was under obligation. And this obligation is something that he considered quite heavy. This obligation was weighty. It essentially meant that he must go to Rome. And the last one is that he had an eagerness. And so what is it that promoted Paul to make this prayer of longing to go and to visit Rome? He longed to have a harvest among them. He felt a great obligation to the people at Rome. And lastly, he was eager for this one great task. The one great task being the proclamation of the gospel. As you read through this, all of these are really, I mean, we read through these prayers and I think that we quickly remove the prayer from them. These prayers that we see Paul make really in the beginning of every single one of his letters are drenched with affection for the church that he writes to. He writes to this church at Rome because he loves them. And he loves them not because there's anything in them that's lovely, but because they know the one. He knows the one who has ransomed them, ransomed them and brought those Romans into the family of God. This great love that he has for them is what motivates the words of every prayer. But that love is rooted in the finished work of Christ and the beauty of the gospel that unites them in something that is more transcendent than anything that can be found here. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is walk us through these three things, these three things that motivate his desire to go to Rome. And then at the very end of the message this morning, I want to do a brief case study. What happened when Paul made it to Rome? 
And so with that said, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Romans chapter one, we'll start in verse eight and make our way through verse 15. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. For I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would accompany the preaching of your word, the power, the authority of the scriptures with the proclamation that can only be brought about by the spirit of God. Lord, we know that applications cannot be made by feeble minds and carnal means, but it is made by the spirit of God. And so Father, we ask, would you accompany the proclamation of your word with the spirit's power to apply the truths of scripture to our hearts that we might be obedient unto them, that we might love Christ all the more who has made our obedience possible because Lord, we know that the mind that is set on the flesh cannot please God, but based upon the faith that is birthed in us by the spirit, we long for obedience. We long to glory in the beauties of the gospel. And not only that, we long to labor for them for they are a great and fruitful labor. So Father, we ask you, would you make much of yourself through the proclamation of your word this morning? It is in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The sermon in a sentence this morning is a really simple one. I'm convinced it's the shortest sermon in a sentence I've ever written, which is seek the harvest. Seek the harvest. And the reason that's the sermon in a sentence is because really my desire this morning, just to kind of give you where we're going, my desire is that we would have this, this, this fix in what our motivations are. Because I'm largely convinced that as we live the Christian life, we are so grateful as we should be for the finished work of Christ. We're grateful that genuinely our justification is accomplished. That even as we look at our sanctification, we know that ongoing process where God continues to work in us that we might work out our salvation with fear and trembling, even looking forward to the blessed hope of glorification. We know all of those things are based in and actually completed on in the finished work of Christ. But brothers and sisters, there is something that I'm convinced we often overlook we overlook that there is a good and sweet labor for the Christian. And it is interesting that as Paul makes his way through this particular passage, we see him think through and meditate on these unique labors. And, and as we walk through these, it is my hope that we would begin to perhaps fix our eyes or perhaps yank our eyes off of what this world would offer us and call good and call a harvest and call fruitful and have our eyes fixed on that which God calls fruitful. We must have eyes that are fixed on a godly economy, a godly fruit, a godly benefit, a godly profit. And so as we look at this, what my hope is, is as we examine Paul's prayer, what we will discover is his language of harvest should be the great desire of the Christian's life. So let's look at verse 13. In verse 13, it says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. We'll deal with that at the end of the message in order that I may reap a harvest among you. Now, I just want to notice these particular words because in his motivation, why is it that he longs to be with the saints at Rome? Why is it that he longs to be in Rome in general? First, he desires some harvest. 
Now, I do want to point out some interesting language here because it doesn't seem like he's, he's looking at this and we would almost assume that the appropriate language here would be that Paul desires God to have a harvest in Rome. Now, it is innate within his own desire for a harvest that that is the case. But when we look at this, Paul's desire is that he would have a harvest. I mean, just notice the language. He says, in order that I may have some harvest among you. Can I ask a question? Is this folly for Paul to say that he desires a harvest among them? Is it foolish for Paul to say that I desire some harvest? I desire that there be some fruit produced in my life. I desire that there be something of benefit, something of glory brought about through my ministry. And fruit spoken of in various ways in the New Testament, certainly we're familiar with the fruit of the Spirit that all of those blessed things that the Spirit of God produces in the life of the saint. And it doesn't seem as though that's what he's making reference to. Instead, it seems as though he is making reference to the idea that through his life, Jesus Christ might be made much of. That the language of Paul, as he's considering going to Rome, his primary motivation is not for financial gain. It's not even that he might have just this unique mutual encouragement. The primary motivation of everything that he's, he's doing is that he might have a harvest, that there might be some fruit. And perhaps it would do us well to just give a brief definition to work from in regard to what is the harvest that Paul longs for. And I think it's rather simple. It should be the heart cry of every Christian that the glory of God, the beauty of Christ and the worship of his name might be magnified that in his labors, in his going to Rome, as he's praying and urging that somehow he does not even care how he arrives at Rome. He leaves that completely up to God. He doesn't even make a request. He says, just get me there that I might have some harvest, that there might be some tongue that would not have sung the praises of Jesus that would because I have arrived to preach the gospel. That there might be some saint there who has not understood the full beauty of imputed righteousness, that I might arrive, display that to them. And as they see the beauty of the gospel, the completeness of it, that they might all the more loudly sing the praises of Christ. What Paul's desire for is that the worship of Jesus might be made all the more loudly based upon his ministry. Saints, we would do well to regain this. We would do well to regain a reality that in our labors, our hope, our motivation, our joy, the thing that gets us out of bed in the morning, even if that is simply to get up and go to your normal everyday job, that your labor there may result in people singing loudly the praises of Christ. He is not given any occupation. There is not a single moment of your day that should not be given to the proclamation of the gospel, to the exaltation of Christ. If our mind is set as Paul's mind was, why do I want to go to Rome? Yes, he would make tents while he was there, should he go of his own will. He would labor in those ways, but his primary motivation, everything that motivated him was that God would be worshiped. And I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that the motivation of all mission is this reality. The motivation of every missional tr mission trip we take, the motivation of every discipleship rela relationship we have, the motivation of every evangelistic opportunity we have is not just for the souls of those people, though certainly we rejoice to see them redeemed. It is because Jesus is worthy of worship and praise and he is worthy of the worship and praise of every soul. Why do we go? Why is it that we long to be? Why is it that Paul longs to be at Rome? Why is it that we wake up in the morning? Is because God has a blessed economy that for some reason he has included ruined sinners in. That we get to go forth and proclaim a gospel that bears, hear me, not temporary fruit. 
There's not a single thing you see the apostle, the apostle Paul do where he encourages you to bear a temporary fruit. He even reminds us that physical labor is of some value, but it is of lesser value at best to spiritual labor, to spiritual fruit. I'm convinced that the church has lost this reality. We wake up, we go about our day, and we forget that there is an eternal harvest of which God has made us partakers. There's a reason that the primary command in regard to missions is what? That God would send workers into the field. Brothers and sisters, we pray that, but we pray that with the expectation that God will indeed do it. And I am convinced that he does it through the ordinary everyday operations of the saints of God. Every day, we are given the opportunity to bear fruit, to long for a harvest. And in that longing for a harvest, we have a desire, the primary motivation, every fruit that is ultimately produced that we would rejoice in is that Christ is worshiped. And perhaps it is that you think this foolish. Perhaps it is that you think that, oh, the fruit that's produced must be to the worship of God. I can't touch that. No, you can't. Which means that it's infinitely more valuable than anything that you can. The reality is that the worship of Christ is the most precious harvest that will ever come. There's a reason in Revelation, when we read through even the marriage supper of the Lamb, what is the sweetest moment in heaven when the saints gather around the, the throne to worship Christ, when every tribe, tongue, and nation is represented to the praise of the glory of Jesus Christ. That is the great harvest that we long for, the worship of Jesus. And we must count that as more valuable than anything that this world has to offer, primarily because it is. And secondly, because everything else fades there will be no song sung of anything here in eternity. The only songs that will be sung are to the glory of Christ, for it is the only thing that stands the test of time. It is the only great reality that cannot and will not fade. So we must long for a harvest. Paul longed for a harvest and it should be our aim to seek it. But that does lead us to ask the question, how is it that we aim to seek and to bring about a fruitful harvest for God? How is it that we long to see there be the worship and praise and glory of Jesus Christ's name? What are we to be doing? Because brothers and sisters, it seems as though the apostle Paul says, I long to be there and there's an intended end to his presence. The intended end to his presence is this. Look at what he says, because he breaks this apart into two particular categories. He says, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So let's deal with the you first. So who is the you that he's speaking of? And thankfully, we don't have to go far to figure out the answer. If you jump back up to verse six, you'll see this, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now we already did an exposition of that text and it's just a, perhaps a point of reminder that those who belong to Jesus Christ have been given to him before the foundation of the world, that those who belong to him will be with him eternally. Their souls are not in peril if they be with Christ. And so what is it that he desires to do with them? How is it that he desires a harvest? Because I'm convinced that we have essentially made harvest. The only true form of it is a converted soul. And we should rejoice that every soul converted. But is that the only harvest that can be had? Is the only harvest that new souls would be birthed into the kingdom of God? Because it does not seem that the apostle Paul thought this. Because as he makes his way, he's speaking to these people who he's already called that they belong to Jesus Christ. He says that they are loved of God and they are called to be saints. They certainly, these people that he's writing to, that he longs to have a harvest among, are those who already belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, are beloved of God and have been called to be saints. Saints meaning holy. They themselves are holy based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
And so what is it that Paul longs to do with them so that he might reap some harvest among them? He longs to impart a spiritual gift, as Blake mentioned in the previous text. Remember verse 11, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. What is this spiritual gift and how is it applied to those who are already in Christ? Brothers and sisters, we commonly refer to this as discipleship. If we could reclaim this one thing, that discipleship is a crucial part of producing fruit for the Lord, of laboring in a unique way that brings him glory, honor, and praise, that I am convinced that the church would be a far more healthy place. Because we would have those who are not still on milk as though they should be on solid food. They have not abandoned the gospel of Christ. They have gone deeper into the gospel of Christ. And so what is the harvest that he longs for? He longs to go there, to be in Rome and to labor among them, to help them to see and to behold all the beauties of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, I am certain that many of you, as you came to faith, were much like me. The basic gist of what you knew of the gospel is that your sins were forgiven. And you thought, oh, what a great reason to rejoice and to sing. My sins are forgiven. No longer am I held in condemnation under God's wrath and fury. And then you began to white knuckle it. You began to think, oh, but I must labor and I must labor hard lest there be any extra sin that was added. That way I would be back under the, under the wrath of God and under the wrath of God justly. And then perhaps a brother or sister approached you and told you of the glory of the imputed righteousness of Christ, that when you stand before God at the day of judgment, it is not just that your sins are forgiven, it's that you stand there clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And as you stand there, you're immediately freed from those burdens of laboring for your salvation and begin to labor from that glorious righteousness that is given to you. May I ask you a question? When those realities came, when they were made clear to you, did you sing a bit louder the following Sunday? Did you rejoice a bit deeper because not only were your sins forgiven, but you stand before God as a wretched sinner, righteous. I can think of no greater reason to sing. Or perhaps it is that you thought, oh yes, I can be in Christ, but apart from the church. And then the brother or sister came to you and told you of the beauties of the family of God, that you were not only bought with his blood, that you were sanctified, but you've been adopted into a family. And that family has a visible representation here that you can come, that you can be a part of, that you can have unique fellowship and family in ways that the world knows not. And you came and you heard the singing of not just one, not just one soul that had been born again, not just one soul who has come to the reality that their sins are forgiven, but the imputed righteousness of Christ rests upon them. Instead, you hear a myriad of voices all singing the praises of Christ. Is it not sweet? And does it not give all the more motion to your tongue to sing? Brothers and sisters, discipleship is a means of harvest. When we planted this church, we planted it with a phrase, follow Jesus, make disciples. It's not just for the purpose of catchy, our aim, the purpose of this body, the purpose of every church, even if they have abandoned it, is to make disciples, is to teach people to obey all that the Lord Jesus has commanded. Why? Because Jesus is worthy of every ounce of praise that can be wrung from their life. He is worthy of every song sung. He is worthy of every step being taken in faith and obedience unto him. We disciple the way that Paul longed to disciple even those who already belong to the Lord Jesus, even those who are already loved of God and called to be saints. Brothers and sisters, we must remember God's economy. We must remember that his intent is to see souls worship him for their good and for his glory. 
Why is it that we disciple? Why is it that we train? Why is it that we long to see people grow in knowledge of God? Because we are convinced of this great reality that knowledge of God naturally leads to a deeper love for Him. And that deeper love for Him naturally leads to a deeper obedience unto Him. I can still not think of any man who loved anyone and was constantly in disobedience unto them. The love of God drives our obedience and perhaps the greatest obedience it drives is worship. Jesus is worthy of worship. And we have done ourselves a great disservice if we think that the only harvest is among those who are being brought into the kingdom. No, there is a great harvest among those who are already here. There's a great harvest among those who need to see that there are far greater beauties that they can ever delve here below. And thus we go forth. Why is it that Paul longs? He Paul, Paul longs to go to reap a harvest among those who are already believers. And may I simply take a brief pause here to say, brothers and sisters, especially those of you who are mature in Christ, long for this harvest. If God has given you the ability to open the scriptures, to read them and to study them and to convey them to a brother or sister who is younger than you in the faith, do not neglect that blessed gift. And do not neglect perhaps even a bit of longing to see God made much of through your life. We do well, as I said, to remember God's economy. Brothers and sisters, if there are those among you who do not know the Lord Jesus, would you do me a great favor and do a great favor to anyone here who is a bit older in the faith, who has opportunity to bless you with glories of the word of God that they have studied and, and poured over their entire life. Seek them out and ask, would you have a harvest? Would you labor in this field that I, might make much, that I might make much of Jesus and that you might have the opportunity to make much of Jesus by making disciples? And so Paul longed, longed to see a harvest among those who were already believers through the ministry of discipleship. We'll get to how he executes this a bit later. But then it goes on to say, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. And the rest of the Gentiles is essentially this concept that those who are outside of the church, because when he's writing this letter to Rome, he is writing this letter to not only Gentiles, but he's writing it to Jews. We'll even see in the next verse that he's writing it to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. So what is it that Paul longs to do as he makes his way to Rome? Paul longs to have a harvest among those who are not believing. Now, it is important for us to remember two things about the proclamation of the gospel through evangelism. As we consider the reality that Paul longs to have some harvest through the proclamation, the evangelism of the gospel, that it might go forth. There are two things that we must always remember as we go forth evangelizing. And really, we pull this from Paul's understanding of gospel proclamation. Paul understood that the gospel goes forth for two primary purposes. It goes forth for the purpose of judgment and it goes forth for the purpose of salvation. And we need to remember this so that we might be all the more faithful evangelist, because it is our great desire to bring glory, honor, and praise to Jesus Christ. That means our evangelism should be in line with his message. It is never for the intent of making it more palatable. It's never for the intent of making sure that someone were to make a profession of faith. The purpose of gospel proclamation is to proclaim the gospel. The purpose of gospel proclamation is to make much of Jesus Christ, whose gospel is infinitely wise and good. And yes, at the same time, it is a stumbling block to many who are foolish. But the purpose of gospel proclamation is to go forth and to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Remember, it should be the desire, the delight for every soul to go forth who has been ransomed by Christ to proclaim his name, to make much of him. And we leave the result up to God who is able to save the deadest of men. 
And so we trust as we go forth. We long to have fruit produced through our life. So we go forth evangelizing, longing to see souls saved. Now, this is the one that perhaps is most prevalent today. We speak of a harvest in regard to souls. And we should speak of it to some degree that there are many out there. There are many brothers and sisters who have not yet come to saving faith. They are still under the weight and the guardian of the law until Christ comes to release them. And so we go forth preaching the gospel, knowing that as they are converted, and here's the great motivator again, that as souls are converted, another tongue sings Christ's praise. That tongue that was still and obstinate and hateful, that tongue that cursed God with every breath they breathe, will one day by His grace, those, all those who were given to the Son from the foundation of the world will indeed come to saving faith. And when they do, the most hateful of tongues will sing His praise. This is the harvest that we long for. It is not just a harvest of souls. It's not just a multiplication of souls inside of our local church, though we long for that. It's that Christ would be worshiped. It's that that great multitude around the throne that will sing his praises forevermore that we might have a pretty decent shadow of that here below. For we long to have this harvest. And brothers and sisters, as we go forth proclaiming the gospel, there is no harvest There is no harvest if we go forth with a gospel that isn't true. This is why it is a great danger to recommend plans of salvation and things of that nature. Brothers and sisters, you've been well-equipped, and we'll see this here in a moment, but you've been well-equipped with the gospel who is able to save the deadest of men, that there is none so hateful, there is none so rebellious that God cannot woo into himself and redeem. And so he longs for a harvest But as he longs for this harvest, we see him go a little bit further, and particularly in regard to evangelism. Notice verse 14. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. Now, this word obligation is really important. We see it actually used again later on in the book of Romans where he says, I am no longer a debtor to the flesh, but a debtor to the spirit. Now, this is really interesting language, primarily because Paul is essentially placing himself under. He is placing himself in debt to who? Let's look at it. Greek and barbarian, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now, this is essentially a roundabout way of saying every soul, that Paul has something, and I would go to the extent of saying that the church of God has something that every man needs, that we are indeed debtors. We possess something that must be given to every man. And this goes back to understanding the gospel call that is meant to go out. Brothers and sisters, we should count ourselves as debtors to every soul that we come in contact with. We should count ourselves as debtors that we have the glorious gospel of Jesus, that it should be our great delight to fulfill our debt to them. And our debt to them is to give them that gospel, is to proclaim to them the excellencies of Jesus Christ. And certainly we trust whether it will go out for judgment or for salvation, but we know that we are in debt. We are in debt to every man to proclaim the beauties of this gospel. And if I could for a moment make this known, I think sometimes we look at passages like this and we begin to exclude people, or perhaps we place this in a really unique encapsulated moment. That is not the case. This debt that we have to Greek and to barbarian, to wise and to foolish is not a debt that is only to be fulfilled in unique amount of times that we would call mission trips or evangelistic outreach. This is day-to-day life. There are people that you come in contact with every single day, brother or sister, you are in debt to them to bring them the gospel. And if not in debt to them, then perhaps could we count it that we are debtors to the God who ransomed us? That if we are debtors to him to proclaim the beauties of this gospel, our tongue is so slow to speak of the one who raised it from the dead. 
We are debtors. And we should count that great joy. Isn't it interesting that Paul, in his, in his introduction to this, he would call himself, he would place himself under this. And we often think that we're too lofty to bring someone the gospel. Brothers and sisters, you are debtors to every soul. And we bring them the good news of Christ. And I will confess to you as I read through this, it makes perfect sense for me to look at verse 14 and say, oh, he's not talking about being under obligation to Greek and to barbarian. He's talking about being under obligation to Jesus, which would make perfect sense, wouldn't it? But that's not at all what he says. He essentially is making the argument that his indebtedness to Christ produces an indebtedness to all souls. That that beauty of the gospel cannot be held inside. It must be given and it must be given to every soul. Now it is important once again to mention that he uses two extremes here. And in these two extremes, he places every single soul laid out that we are in debt to all of them. But it is interesting that he immediately goes into the means of this harvest. How is it that he's going to disciple? How is it that he is going to evangelize? And as he lays out these two particular people groups, how is it that these souls can be reached? They are polar opposites. Have you ever attempted to deliver a message to one who is very wise and at the exact same time, with the exact same language, give it to one who is called in this particular text, a fool? Don't we have to work through the proper means of proclamation? Can't we contextualize this? We need to make it more palatable. But what Paul lays out here is that the Greek and the barbarian, and the barbarian is pretty much anyone who isn't Greek, the wise and the fool are reached with the same eager proclamation. I mean, notice what it says in verse 15. What is it? Why is he so eager now? He thinks about this great harvest that he longs to have, that there would be those who were discipled and trained, those who were evangelized, those who would come to saving faith. And he is under an obligation for this proclamation. But what is that proclamation that is able to reach the wisest of men and the most foolish of them? Verse 15. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. It's rather simple, isn't it? We make this so complex. We make this so difficult. And I'm convinced that it is that which binds our feet in evangelism. We try to make it something. We try to make it into a, we need to make sure they respond. Brothers and sisters, Paul was eager for one thing, to preach the gospel. Paul was eager for the primary purpose of going in and seeing a harvest. And he knew the only means of true and fruitful harvest is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other means of harvest. There is no other means. There is no other means by which you can walk into a room and preach the wisest of men and the most foolish. There's no other means by which you can walk into a room with Greeks and barbarians. They may not even understand the language of the other and bring the exact same message and see fruit produced. And not just a temporary fruit, but an eternal fruit. Brothers and sisters, I am convinced that we have often overlooked or perhaps altogether forgotten the power of the gospel to give life to dead men. We want to make it an intellectual argument. And brothers and sisters, is the gospel intellectual? Most certainly, but it is also called foolish. It is the power of God for salvation. Why is it that we would ever go in wielding anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ? That gospel that goes forth by the Spirit's application and effectual call saves men who are weak, who are strong, who are wise, who are foolish, who are Greeks, who are barbarians. And it has the ability to redeem them all in the exact same way by the finished work of Christ. That blood is gloriously effectual. It saves and it saves to the uttermost. One of the Interesting things about going through seminary is I'm given all of these various forms of evangelism. And you know, it's most harmful is that very few of them are simply reminding 
the saints of God, those especially who are pursuing pastoral ministry of the sufficiency of the gospel, you need not know everyone's life story. You do not need to contextualize it every single time into their particular set of circumstances. The gospel is sufficient to save. Because remember, it's not you arguing, it's God giving life to dead men. The gospel did not come to make bad men good, it came to make dead men live. And the whole premise is that as that gospel is preached, he can and will do it. And if we could reclaim this one thing, then I'm convinced that it would birth one great reality. We would be all the more bold. We'd be all the more bold. He's not given us a dull sword. He reminds us over and over again that it is sharper. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to split bone and marrow and soul and spirit. And thus we go forth swinging a very sharp sword, assuming that God is true. And if God is true, then no one can withstand it. That God's desire and delight is to ransom men, is to train them and to make them into faithful souls that are obedient to Christ. Then we go forth wielding one weapon and one weapon alone, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I said that I was going to do a brief practicum. And it is interesting in this story. His whole premise is, I want to have a harvest among you. I want to see souls saved. I want to see souls discipled. I am under obligation to every man, and I'm going to go forth with this one message. And this one message is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you would, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Paul in Romans 1, he makes this statement that somehow at last, by God's will, I may come to you. His whole desire in this prayer is to make it to Rome. And his desire to make it to Rome is rooted in the, the desire, the drive to see fruit produced. And we know that he makes it to Rome. But I want to show you how he makes it to Rome. Because as you read through this, and as you get to the book of Philippians, Paul is currently, as he pens this, is sitting in a prison in Rome. God has granted his request. God has granted his request. He made it to Rome. He made it to Rome specifically in chains. I'm grateful that he prayed somehow. He could not care less how he made it. As long as his desires were met, as long as the thing that motivated him, as long as the thing that drove him would come to fruition. So let's see what happened as Paul made it to Rome. He is going to write to the Philippians and he wants to encourage them, and particularly in verse 12. And I'm going to read a decent amount of text, but it says this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me speaking of his imprisonment and bondage in Rome, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, I want you to notice his understanding of gospel proclamation. And I think we do well to remind ourselves where he is. Paul is in a cell that he probably cannot stand up in bound and he's given a desk, thank the Lord, quite literally, so that he could pen these blessed letters for us. And he begins to consider, I am currently sitting in a prison in Rome. And the one thing that I am sure of is that this has served to advance the gospel. Now, if I could, just for a moment, I'd like to disarm all our means of adding to the gospel, of making it a bit more palatable and a bit more lovely. This man is sitting in a prison cell and he's proclaiming the gospel and he's saying the gospel is taking root. You need nothing else. You need nothing else. He went forth proclaiming the gospel in prison, in chains. You need nothing to make it more lovely. You need nothing to make it a bit more palatable. It is beauty in its essence. And he goes forth preaching it, bound. But brothers and sisters, the gospel is not. 
And so what happens? He goes forth and he goes forth preaching and he goes forth preaching not only in his proclamation. We see that there are souls saved. We see that brothers are discipled and encouraged. They are making much of Jesus. And then in perhaps the most beautiful ending to any book in the New Testament, he says this. This is Philippians chapter four, starting in verse 21. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you especially those of, the, of Caesar's household. Greek barbarian, Caesar's household and the pauper. The gospel saves. It is able to redeem. And brothers and sisters, I think that we would do well to remember one great reality. When Paul prayed, somehow let me come. While I am grateful to hear his somehow, it is the desire that you see in the last portion of his prayer that says, I long to preach the gospel that God used as he made his way in chains to proclaim the gospel and that many in Caesar's household, those who would have been most obstinate, those who would have seen Caesar himself as a God, bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is proclaimed by a man who is in chains. This is the sufficiency of the gospel. It is able to produce a great harvest and that harvest is always the praise of Jesus Christ.